Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me back there, Paula? Awesome. Okay, so we've got a very special day coming up, June 1st, and that is our pastor's birthday. I've got that right, right? That is right, I had yeah. to ask your dad. It is super special, Sorry. yeah. It, it really is. Um, so, got this for you. Oh, thank you, guys. I want to say that, so I've known Matt your whole life, basically. He fell between my oldest and my second oldest, and... Um, Spent a lot of birthdays together at our house, and yeah. I just want to say, um, be praying for our pastor. Um, he's our leader, and and God has has blessed us with someone with a a, a knowledge that. Sir, I've lost my mic. It'll come back. Just okay. Keep going. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> it, it it amazes me, and I learned so much from him, and and I know that. You've got a lot on your plate. Your plate is full. And, but I want to let you know we appreciate you so much. And I just want to ask that every single one of you and those out there in the video world, please pray for our pastor and his family, his lovely wife who is sitting right here in front of me, to give them strength um, and to send helpers. Um, but to remember him on his birthday, because that was a very, very special day for all of us. Um, and we're seeing that today. He's here. He's leading us. And, and he does an amazing job at that. And I so appreciate you, Matt. Thank and we're going gonna, gonna to pray for you right now. Sounds good. <laughs> Lord, I just want to bring Pastor Matt and his family before you, Lord. Pray for strength and guidance. Lord, I know you reside in him and he seeks you humbly every single day uh, in, in his personal life and in the lives of his family here at this church, Lord. He cares about every single one of us. And I know that that is a strength that comes from you, Lord, that, that he has placed it upon his heart. You have placed it upon his heart to love and care for us and to guide us, Lord. So we in turn want to just bring him before you, place him before your throne, Lord, and ask that you would give him all that he needs and that you would um, just continue to be with him as you have promised. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, bless him on his birthday. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Mm. That is very generous and... Just one second. I will come to you, I promise. <laughs> um, as, as I've been a, a pastor for, for a little while now, um, one of the things that I, I've started to kind of notice is that um, it's kind of like being a parent in some ways, in that, um, in good ways, <laughs> in that when mistakes happen, is mistakes happen um, when you're a parent, and mistakes happen when you're uh, when you're a pastor as well. Um, the the Holy Spirit's there to give the the do over, and um, you know I appreciate you know those kind words, and and what I will say is uh, 
if that is what you are seeing, that is the Holy Spirit working that has very little to do with me specifically. So um, I thank you for that, and um, the, the glory goes to Jesus for that. Amen. Um, so this morning, we have an opportunity. You'll see we have the, the trustee's second seat, and so um, that's good news for uh, three people and that they are going to get this off of their chest and they're not going to have to think about it. Um, it's less good news for another three because now you all have to worry about getting a phone call from me. What, what I didn't really anticipate through this process was just how many people were going to actively avoid my phone calls. Um, <laughs> after I announced that we were going to start doing this. I had Cynthia, I was calling her about something uh, unrelated, and, and she was terrified that I was going to ask her to, <laughs> to do this. And I told her, well, that's next month, but, um, but we'll come back to that. Um, anyway, Tammy, you had something you wanted to share. Amen. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Answered prayers. Yes. And one of the things that we're going to see as we go through um, this time this morning is that God answers prayer. And we're going to see that over and over and over again. Um, Paula, I'm going to have you come up first, please. <laughs> oh, uh, mom, let's dismiss the kids. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can sit on that. <laughs> do you want me to get you? We can do different chairs if you want. Would that be easier? Or do you want to stand? I'll just stand. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can hold on to the papers. Anyway, um, he said he wanted just a couple minutes of who I am. The title of my talk is, If God Can Use Me, He Can Use Anybody. I was born in Scotia of a mill worker and a homemaker. Raised in Riodell and Hydesville, I was an only child till I was 10, and then I got a sister. I got another one at 13. When I was seven, I was invited to go play with the neighbor's kids. Their mom told us stories I'd never heard before about Abraham and Moses and a man that loved me named Jesus. I wanted to be loved so desperately that I fell in love with Jesus. When I was 18, I went to live with my dad's parents in Mississippi. I attended a local junior college, hoping to be a school teacher. Then at the suggestion of my pastor, I transferred to Freed Hardeman College in Tennessee. Fried Hardeman is the highest uh, um, learning facility for the church of non-instrumental Church of Christ. So I became quite a Pharisee in those days. After two and a half semesters, I, um, I ran off and got married. Uh, after my first son was born, the three of us moved to, back to Humboldt County. At that time, we came into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I, it was in the 70s, so I grew my hair long and wore my skirts down to the floor. <laughs> and I had two more boys, and the three grew up way too fast. Through thick and thin, 
I hung on to Jesus. I could not have made it without Jesus. Too many things happened. I didn't have enough self-confidence to go get a regular job, so I cleaned houses, and I mopped floors, and I babysat kids. I met a woman from Nairobi who told me, come to Africa, and we will teach you how to worship. I was hooked like a fish. <laughs> I was going to Africa. She wanted me to come and teach her Sunday school that only had 2,000 people in the class. And it was only supposed to be for a week or two. Um, I was excited. But when I got home and I shared it with my husband, he said nothing at the time. But the day that I got my passport, he said, you'll not go or I'll divorce you. And I said, it's only for a couple weeks. No, you'll not go. So very reluctantly, I obeyed my husband. Hardly a day went by when God did not confirm that I had an assignment in Africa. God reminded me in ways I couldn't believe. I'd turn on the news and there'd be a picture of the continent of Africa. I'd turn on the radio and they'd be singing, it's raining in Africa, <laughs> every day. Every day. <laughs> I had an assignment in Kenya. Of course, I prayed a lot, but I wasn't released to go yet. Days slipped by. Days went into weeks. Weeks went into years. It was 10 years before I got to see Africa. God had used the name Mombasa. He wanted me to go to Mombasa. I didn't even know where Mombasa was. I had never heard the word before and I had to look it up on a map. <laughs> okay, God let me know he would be delighted if I went as a Sunday school teacher only, but he pressed into me that I could do much more as a nurse. So I started back to college and it was with great trepidation. I spent a lot of time praying on the floor because I was scared that I could not be a nurse and had no idea what God had called me to. I made it through. I lost my husband in the process. I lost my mother in the process, but holding on to the Lord, I made it through. Um, in Kenya, the first year I worked in Makwangani with Youth with a Mission. I, most of the time I was in the pharmacy because I didn't speak Swahili. So I didn't know. They gave me a cheat sheet, you know, mezambili maratatu, and that means swallow two, three times a day. <laughs> so it was easier in the pharmacy. Anyway, after I desired strongly to have a children's home. So I came back home to make some money, and I worked at St. Joe's for two and a half years. But I could not get the kids out of my head. Every morning, I would wake up and think, did Mwaka and Mwanasha eat today? Did Wanakombo get to go to school today? And it just kept at me until I finally, I emptied out my house and I went back. I rented a Lutheran mission. Okay, I've lost that part. <laughs> 
My reason was to have a children's home. I told you that already. I know you are, oh, within two weeks of me coming back, I only had six kids at that time, a woman came with a sick baby and she said, I knew you up the hill. That clinic had closed after I left. And you are a woman of compassion. If you don't help me, my baby will die. And of course I had to help her because you can't let a baby die, not without a fight. And uh, soon others came. A normal day at my first clinic was 60 to 80 people. They waited for hours, and they thought I had magical powers. God did give me things that I didn't learn in class. God gave me answers to problems that I did not know how to deal with. I know it was him, because no teacher taught me what to do with a snake bite. And yet, if they got to my clinic, I never lost one person that had been bitten by a snake. That isn't me, I don't have that in me. But God is able. Okay, as time passed, my children's home grew to be 26 kids. That's impossible for one person to take care of 26. But my mother told me in her family they had lots of kids and an older one would take care of the younger one. So every one of the older children got assigned a younger one so that they made sure that their hair was combed and they ate their breakfast and they got to school. So that was, it worked. Um, I lived with my kids the next six and a half years. The children's department wanted an enormous bribe from me. They thought I had tons of money and I simply didn't have it so they ordered me on threat of deportation that I had to send these children back to their homes, to their aunties that did not want them, to their grandmothers that could not feed them. And in great grief, I had to send them back. I still got to pay for their schooling. I got to buy their uniforms. I got to buy medicine for them. And I sent them home with food often. I, uh, oh, glory. <laughs> uh, along came Mr. Kagame, and I thought he was the answer to my prayers. And after we were married, he got tangled up in drugs and alcohol. And the more he got tangled up with those substances, he got more and more violent to the point that I thought I was going to die. So I ran home, that's why I'm here, and not there. I would love to be there. Um, I have been waiting, lo these eight years, wanting to go back to my people, and God has not allowed me to go back so far, but I still have hope, hallelujah. Now. God allowed me a trip to Liberia, thanks to you guys. God bless you, everyone. I got to set up um, first aid kits in several homes and in many schools. It was a delight to my heart to be able to do that. And it came from your pockets. And I just wanna share that blessing with you that it was your work that did it. 
Okay, I got one more point, and then I've gone over. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, last a week ago, yesterday, Anna got a hold of me. Anna was one of my girls in Kenya, and it was so sweet to get to talk to her back and forth. She's got two little kids, and I went back through all my Facebook connections, and I actually have. 11 of my children that I communicate with. So, hallelujah for God. Amen. Thank you, Paula. <clears throat> now you're great. So the, the key point that we're going to look at as we kind of go through this and we're going to see this come up time after time after time is, is waiting. And I would imagine that there's probably some of you that are here this morning that are waiting for something. And, you know, if we look at the, the study that we've been going through with Daniel, there's um, waiting that's happening with all of the people of Israel as they're um, taken away the, into Babylon. They're waiting. And God tells them in Jeremiah 29, plant a garden. Get married, have kids, get settled down because you're going to be there for a while. But he also says that he knows the plans that he has. And so God knows the plans that he has for each and every one of us. And so Arnie, if you want to start coming up, we'll get you ready to go next here. There's going to be times of waiting. And sometimes the result of that waiting isn't what we're looking for. Paula, the, I don't know what the result of your waiting this time around is going to be. And, you know, it would be wrong for me to say otherwise. <laughs> but what I do know is God knows. God knows the plans that he has. Okay. Thank you, man. Oh. You got to use it. <laughs> okay. My name is Arnie Lawher. I'm 72 years old. I was born and raised in this valley and uh, my father immigrated to this country when he was 19 years old and my mother was the daughter of a Swiss immigrant girl that came here when she was 19 years old. My mother's father died when, before she was born and my grandmother had to work as a maid in Ferndale. And she was partially raised by an aunt and an uncle. And uh, my grandmother remarried when my mother was nine years old. My dad came here with his father and younger brother. His father left a wife and an older brother in Wales because he was a very hard and unhappy man. He, uh, at a young age, my grandfather went to the Klondike for the gold rush in the late 1890s. From there, he made some money there, came back, put himself to school in Louisiana, was educated, and after that, he got a job working for Hershey Chocolate Company, and he moved 
after marrying, going back to Wales, marrying a woman and then taking his early son to Cuba. And he managed a sugarcane plantation in Cuba. I'm saying all this because I just wanted to show that my father was raised in a, in a broken home with a, with a not-so-nice upbringing. His father left Wales with my dad and his younger brother, and they came to this country, and they landed in Del Norte County. When World War II broke out, joined the army and he spent three years in the South Pacific in World War II. He was in several amphibious landings and, and he was twice wounded in combat and one wound he was hit with shrapnel in his lower back and was paralyzed from his waist down for several months. Instead of shipping him back to the United States, they patched him up and put him back into combat. He had, he didn't talk about it a lot, but he had a lot of harrowing experiences in combat and living life almost like a zombie. And uh, I believe my dad suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome caused him to have problems with alcohol. My mother always said when they were first married, he would have terrible nightmares. <laughs> that drinking caused a lot of problems in our family because he was a different man when he was drinking. He didn't drink constantly, but days and nights when he did, it just caused a lot of turmoil in his family. Although he was one of the hardest working men I've ever known, drinking wasn't all the time, but when he was drunk, he was not fun to be around. He did taught me, teach me how to be a man, to do what's right, even though it was the hardest thing that I'd ever done. My mother and grandmother were Catholic with strong faith. I learned at an early age that there was a God. My grandmother had a very reverent fear of God. And I learned at an early age that. I went to Catholic elementary and high school. I didn't drink during high school, but after I got out of high school, I began drinking. And in college, I started drinking, smoking pot. After college, I went into construction. I always say that the reason I stayed in college was of the Vietnam War. My dad was fervently against that war and strongly advised me not to join, although I had friends that joined and uh, experienced that, but I didn't go. When I was, during that time, you know, I was drinking on Saturday night, 
and raising heck with my friends. But uh, I was always on church, at church on Sunday. I worked construction through my early 20s. And when I was 27, I was introduced to a girl and we got married. I saw warning signs in this, this relationship because we were sexually involved, I thought we could work things out for our problems. When I was 30, I decided to go into dairying on our family farm in Lolita. I started dairying in September of 1980 on our family farm, and on November 8th of 1980, my wife and I separated. My life was in total crisis. I called out to God. I couldn't believe divorce was happening to me. On December 21st of 1980, a, a little Catholic boy friend of mine, same age, showed up at my dairy and led me in the sinner's prayer. And, and those of you who have experienced it, the born-again experience is one of the most powerful times of my life. It was an awareness, truly born again, because it was brand new. <laughs> I could tell something was different in my life. It was different. He, he was aware. He was in my heart. And that was just amazing. I thought that, okay, oh boy. <laughs> I'm saved now, God is on my side, and God was gonna save my marriage. It didn't happen. In July of 1981, or thereabouts sometime, I was divorced. Even after divorce, I kept hoping for God to restore my marriage and be renewed. I went into several years of working hard and being very depressed. Very thankful for the support of my mom and dad and my brother. And uh, the Christian life, my Christian life started out at Faith Center. I learned a lot about God from the pastors that were there, Pastor Larry Briney and Frank, Frank Clarkson. And I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In about 1984, I came to Wood Street chapel and made some lifetime friends. I lived alone and milked cows for 18 years. I was at bed 8.30 and up at 3 o'clock. I had a very deep and spiritual life with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to be said for single life because I didn't have anybody else to talk to but Jesus. And there, I had a very deep relationship with Christ in my single years. It was, it was stuff that I'd learned that they talk about the secret life and there's things I know when I hear <laughs> that it's the Holy Spirit. I know because it's secret things that only he and I have. In 1988, 
I sold my herd of cows and went back into construction. The problem with dairying is that although I worked hard, I wasn't making any money because I didn't have very big, very big herd of cows. And it's just dairying in this state requires more cows, more land. In 2000, I met and married Christine and I had, <laughs> I had 20 years to think about what I did wrong in my first marriage because of what I saw my father, how my father treated my mother. My mother was long suffering, put up with a lot. And I did go the early part of my marriage problems, went to counseling and the, the marriage counselor said, she asked me, how did your father treat your mother? And I told him, and you know, we learned behavior by what we see other people do. My mother put up with a lot, a lot. You know, his drinking and his behavior of his way or the highway. There were lessons learned from that 20 years of being single. I tell people now that I'm married. <laughs> These are the best 22 years of my life. I know I was hoping for God to do something. If you're hoping for God to do something in your life, remember, God is absolutely faithful and he never and never, never, never give up hoping. And I received from God a wife, a marriage, and a life better, better than I could have hoped for. Jeff, come on up, sir. So again, in the, that testimony, in that, that history, we see waiting, waiting for God's promises. And in the midst of that waiting, it's not like you're, you're static. In the midst of that waiting, there's growth, there's development, there's improvement that takes place. All right, sir. Man, it is nervous up here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking over there, if I could pray words that I don't know, to a living God I can't see, then surely I could speak words to you who I can see and do know. So. <laughs> so just think through it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got, no, 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 I'm good. Um, I want to open with the preface of, of, you know, keeping in the theme why I'm sharing this story. I'm sharing the story because it's how God made me wait, yearn, long, and uh, desire, and in the end, gave me my prayer life. And I wouldn't have had it if he didn't do it this way, because um, in my childhood, my family suffered a severe, and I can't describe how severe uh, the trauma was, other than say it was death, it was carnage, it was, it was gory. 
And all the children in my family saw it, and I was just a baby, so I didn't see it. But then there becomes the elephant in the room that affects how you're developed. And so um, I'm not going to um, dishonor my sister who passed away by just kind of like glossing over, but I'm going to move on. So now that you know, this is a traumatized being, you know, and the, the ADHD that has fostered from that uh, is so real that my hypervigilance is almost toxic at some points. And so um, with hypervigilance comes obsession. And so I'm, I'm just sharing that with you so you get an idea that this isn't your normal, you know, circumstance of a child, okay? So we moved, uh, I was born in San Jose. And by the way, my name's Jeff. Um, I was born in San Jose, I'm four years old. <laughs> you know, I was born in San Jose, and uh, we moved from San Jose, from that house where this happened. We were a middle-class family, uh, five-bedroom house, six kids, and now down to five. We lived in that house. The enemy moved his camp into our house. Our house was a spiritual home prior to this, Catholic family, you know, doing the middle class thing in the early 70s during the Cold War. And then uh, we moved to Santa Cruz. And I went to school for the first time in, in Santa Cruz in the second grade. And so here's where the story turns into a little love story between two little, you know, classmates. And so uh, I, I fell in love with this little girl, Michelle, in, in my class. Okay. And, uh, didn't think much of it. You play in the schoolyard, you chase each other, you kick each other in the knees, say you hate each other, and move on. You know, the <laughs> usual things, right? That's what we do, right? That's how we know we like each other, right? <laughs> we pull each other's hair and throw each other. So third grade came, and she wasn't there. And think in terms of somebody who's not nurtured and has that, that need. You know, I went to school first day of school, third grade, expecting my little friend to be there and that my world was going to be complete again. She wasn't. And the despair that set in was like a depression and a longing and a sorrow. And I, that, as an adult, I recognize as loss, real loss. And, and you know, it may seem comical about that, and you're only eight years old. No, it's, it's eight years old, but it's, it's a traumatized eight years old. And so I remember distinctively saying, well, I need to talk to God. We need to talk about, to God about this. So I went to the Lord, and I begged him that I would see my friend again, that we would play together again. And that developed. And I didn't understand the mechanics of obsession when I was that age. Like, who would, right? So you find yourself in this hyper-focus, and then all of a sudden, the blinders are on, and that's all you can see. I remember getting on my bicycle on the weekends, riding my bike all over Santa Cruz, seeing if I could like run into her at a grocery store or something. It was that bad. And this went on till about 11 and a half, 12 years old. Every night, I prayed. Every night diligently. One day, we, we, we did move from there, and we moved to the next town over, Aptos. 
going to a new school, decide, you know, playing, you know, living normal life, moving on, you know, doing my thing, still praying. And uh, some little girl across the street decides she likes me, sends some little boy over, you know, Debbie likes you. I'm like, uh-oh. So I pray to the Lord. And I'm not making this up, you guys. I wouldn't be up here saying this, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but I think about how crazy this sounds, right? I pray to the Lord, and I'm like, you know, Lord, I'm not a little kid anymore. <laughs> I'm older now. And this is crazy. I keep begging you for the same thing every night, every night. And anybody who, who you know, knows what that kind of traumatized child looks like. I would rock in bed, bang my head against the wall. I used to do this thing where I'd do a half uh, somersault and hit the wall and then fall back on my pillow, hit the wall and fall back on my pillow. I'd do that for an hour and a half every night just to go to bed, okay? And I was heavily medicated with up to 30, 30 milligrams of methamphetamines to, to calm me down, you know? So uh, I wasn't clearly in my right mind all the time. So I pray to the Lord, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm older now. I, I, don't, I don't need to keep doing this. There's a girl across the street who likes me, and I'm going to see what that's about. So I, uh, you know, I engage her, hey, how you doing, da-da-da-da-da. And uh, we're hanging out. And then about a, within that week, Okay, I, I try to remember exactly how many days because I think it matters, but it really doesn't. It's just within that week. That's how fresh this is. The, the girl I'm hanging out with, she says, hey, I want to play some ball with you. I don't play ball. I don't do sports. I'm not that guy. <laughs> you know. She's like, well, you need to go borrow a mitt from one of the neighbors. So I'm like, okay. She says, I'll go talk to the Blinkenbergs. They're in the mobile home over there, right there in front of where we're playing. So I go up to the screen door, and I knock on it, and some girl you know, says hello from the other side, and I'm like, hey, uh, I need to borrow a mitt from, you know, from John or Gina who live here, and she's like, I'll go find them, see what we do. So uh, I get the mitt, but I felt really weird. Like, I could feel it vibrating in my chest. I couldn't breathe. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, what's that about? And the girl comes out to play with me and Debbie, and I said, are you Michelle? She said, yeah, I am. Who are you? I'm not. This is real. <laughs> right? I said, oh, I'm Jeff. I went to school with you in second grade. I'm your stalker. I'm your obsessed fan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, so she's like, oh, my gosh, yes, I remember you, of course. Absolutely, right? So talking for a moment, and, uh, you know, naturally, Debbie gets a little jealous and goes in her house. And Michelle sees that and she goes, hey, um, so are you, are you and Debbie a thing? Are you guys together? And I, 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 don't know what, I don't know why, I just blurted out, yes. And it was kind of offensive. <laughs> That's what you get from an 11 or 12 year old, you know? So she goes, oh. She gets off the little bicycle thing, goes in her house. Now I'm standing there alone, right? <laughs> so, so, um, that story does end at the end of the day. I did run into her years later, 
and, and that's another story. It didn't turn into anything. We just, I just know, I, I know of her, and that's not the important thing here. The important thing is, is that for three years, an eight-year-old, every night, begged God for the same thing over and over and over again. And then, within the week that he decides that he's done being patient, that he's done waiting, that he's spent everything he has, and he's, he's through with it, the Lord says, no, I'm God. I will show you who I am, how I operate, you know? And no, you're not supposed to be with this 11-year-old girl, okay? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's not the, the point. Means. That's <laughs> not the point, okay? But I will say this, and I, and I mean this, you know, I want, to take, I want to say two things. If you were to ask me who I could relate to, or uh, there's, uh, there, there are people in this church that I can relate to, you know, as far as I think they're a lot like me. But when I look at my, my earliest childhood development, it was, it was crazy. They put me in a box to keep me safe. They literally caged me in a room, and that's a whole other story. But the, the trauma that created, that, that came out of that is, is so close to the edge, you know. Um, like, I, I look at young Colton. I watch him, and I'm like, that's me when I was little, you know, um, mindlessly doing my thing and kind of paying attention to everyone around me. But in my world, I'm in my world. And my world is not your world. And I am not neurotypical. And that's the reality, you know. So when I think about that level of childhood and how the Lord used that prayer life that he gave me and how it never went away. After she went away, my prayer life with him became everything else. It was, it was so stuck in my mind that God would never go away at this point because I was there with him daily. And so I'd walk on the railroad tracks with him. I'd get in trouble with him, smoked a lot of cigarette butts with him. <laughs> you know? I was just a kid. You know? it, was, it, was, it was, you know, I spent my time with God, and the God used that. And then I gave my life to the Lord because he used that. But I had a prayer life, and it started at such an early age. And the one thing he did tell me Friday, he gave me this to share, is that when you're a child, your prayer and your requests are like wishes. Children wish. They wish for things. Okay? And every time that child's wishing, it's like, it's like they're throwing a coin in a well. And at the end of the day, they don't realize it, but when they, come, when they become an adult, that well is full. Their worth is amazing because of what the Lord puts in that well, because of their requests. That patience, that waiting is so critical, and it brings sorrow, and sorrow brings petition, you know? Sorrow makes us want we want God to fix something, you know? So um, that's just one little piece of my world, one little one chapter out of the page there um, that I wanted to share because that is where my prayer life started, you know? 
and it never ended. So he, he gave that to me at that age. So thank you so much. I don't know where we are on time, but I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> thank you, Dad. Waiting. Nobody wants to. <laughs> and yet we all, we all have to. There, there, as I said, every single one of us has a point in our life that we are, are waiting expectantly for something to happen. Whether it's for the sale of a grocery store or uh, <laughs> the, uh, the promise of a, a partner in, in your life, whether it's um, something to do with your children, provision for a job, whether it's something to do with your, your home, whatever the case may be, there are there are things that, that depend on God's timing, and God's ways are higher than our ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, God. We thank you for the testimony and the, the life stories that were shared this morning. God, what an opportunity to, to receive from you, from your church. God, we, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the faithfulness that was demonstrated in each and every one of the the life stories that was shown here. God, as we go from this place, I ask that you would just uh, continue to encourage for those of us that are in that that waiting time, that you would bring hope, that you would cause us to look forward. And while we're in the midst of that, Lord, help us to, to seek to grow and to develop into who you would have us be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 